Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Sam Reich was 21 when College Humor hired him as its first director of original content in 2006. In just a few short years, the success of in-house web series such as Hardly Working and Jake and Amir got Reich and College Humor a sketch comedy show on MTV. While that show didn't last, Reich helped executive produce, write, or direct several others, among them Adam Ruins Everything for True TV, Hot Date for Pop, and Rhett Link's Buddy System on YouTube Red. In 2020, Reich acquired College Humor from IAC, where he continues to oversee the making of original comedy videos for the channel's 14 million subscribers on YouTube. He's also CEO for Dropout, the subscription-based streaming platform he founded. Its shows include Um Actually, Dimension 20, and the game show Game Changer, which Reich himself hosts. It's been a long, strange trip making comedy videos, and it's not over yet for Reich, so let's get to it! Sam Reich, uh, last things first, uh, tell me about yourself. <laughs> um, well, I, uh, hmm, I, uh, thanks for having me on the show. First of all, um, points for that. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm referring of course see. to, uh, one of the many games in Sam in your new endeavor game changer. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for watching. That was a wild episode. <laughs> um, yeah, God, just another. It's funny because this year seems, it feels so full of firsts. And I'm sure you have this too, as someone who's been a part of this industry for as long as you have. And yet we're still doing the same old stuff <laughs> that we did a decade ago. It's almost as if the world has changed around us. More than we've actually changed. Yeah. Do you think that makes us admirable or stubborn that everybody else has moved on to yeah. other things while I'm still doing the comics, comic.com and you're still at college humor? Yeah, it's true. We're a funny combination of like new old fashioned new media. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, I do feel stubborn about pieces of it. I would say that I was, I don't know if you feel this way that I was um, spoiled early on in my career by like great creative experiences. Yeah. I feel you were spoiled by that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, without traditional industry gatekeepers. Um, and then later on in my career, as I started to, you know, experiment more with TV, I think I figured out just how spoiled I was. And so there is a way in which I feel sort of nostalgic and a little stubborn about the early internet. Mm. And in a lot of ways, I, I want to, I think I'm a, I have a little bit of a Peter Pan complex about it where I want to get back there, <laughs> you know, to that like version of the internet where it felt like anything was possible. Right. And what made it special was, you could get an audience for something that was pretty weird. Um, 
Yeah, one of my one uh, of my uh, one of my last things first questions I had for you was what's the last time you pulled an all-nighter for work? Ooh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> it's been a minute. Um I mean, we we we've had some tough deadlines that we've had to hit over the last few years where I've done uh late nights. But College Humor's last all-nighter like branded all-nighter was a few years ago at this point maybe like three or four years ago um and sadly you know the only reason we stopped doing them is they stopped getting like sold like the partnership like the there were no ad buyers for them anymore the the sales team couldn't hack it (laughs) you mean you weren't just staying up just for the fun of it (laughs) <laughs> yeah, man. You know, it takes a toll on the body at a certain age uh, to stay up all night. But when you talk uh, about the, the but when you talk about the nostalgia of the early internet, the college humor all nighter is like one of the things I go to in my head. Of like, remember when that just used to be this just no no rules, but also like no judgment of like just funny people doing <clears throat> yeah totally. totally and a lot of those funny people have gone on to become big people and not just the voice of sonic the hedgehog i dude i know i was texting with dan gerwich the other day who remains just like this wonderful disarming guy and we were making some joke i can't remember what it was and i referred to him as two-time emmy award winner dan gerwich and he texted back sam five-time Emmy winner Digger. And I was like, oh my God! How did I admit, like, what has happened to all of this talent? It's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, take me back to those those heady first days because you essentially jump-started, launched College Humor's very first pivot from mm. from website to video. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was brought aboard to make the videos, whatever that means. And they were very upfront about that. They were like, we don't really know what we should be doing in video. We're hiring you to help us figure that out. Um, this was back in 2006. So what was um, the landscape like then? Um, there were like major networks beginning to flirt with online video. I don't know if you remember any of these brands, but like NBC had dot comedy, HBO had this just in, uh, Turner had the, um, first iteration of super deluxe. I was familiar with super deluxe. And, uh, yeah. The Huffington Post had started one. (laughs) Oh, six. Yeah. You could be right. 23, six. I think Um, they're called or, Instead of 24. Oh, yes. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, and um, yeah, 23.6, I'd forgotten all about them. Office Pirates. I can't remember who was responsible for that. That was around back then. Okay. Um, it, and I think the College Humor guys, their credit, they knew that video was going to be a big part of the future of brands like ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just didn't know exactly how, and so they wanted to make some sort of investment in it. And that investment was me and a little budget. I mean, I was employee number 20 or like 22 or something. Um, was, that, was that before or after Jake and Amir showed up? 
So Amir was there. And I think Jake was hired like two weeks after I was as an intern. Um, uh, and then it wasn't until we moved into a new office space that they were apropos of nothing sat across from each other. Um, completely, you know, randomly. And that was the birth of Jake Amir. Um, yeah. And then it was, I mean, in the years that followed, it was sort of like, well, I can't keep up the desired pace because I was hired to make a video a week and I immediately failed at that. I think I was making a video every like two or three weeks. Okay. Cause I just couldn't do it all myself. I really was, I was producing, directing, editing, everything and writing probably half of everything at that point. Um, and so we hired like one producer, good friend of mine, Jordan Hall. Um, and then sort of slowly, but surely added kind of person by person to the team until we were more of a, a shop. And then I think, so the, the college humor show was, like you were saying in 2009. And I think it was kind of like after the, the college humor show is a, a kind of an interesting grow, growing experience in a way, because we really broke the machine. Um, we had this show that from a ratings perspective did fine, but MTV wasn't enamored with it. Um, and I, I think what it was, I can't remember this. Fully, but I think MTV came back and said, well, we're willing to do a season two, but we want, uh, we Viacom want a percentage of the company um, if we're going to do a season two. And I said, no chance. And then everything fell apart. But I, the learning experience may have been more that it was like miserable, like really, really, really deeply, profoundly miserable uh, making that show. Um but I hadn't yet learned my lesson that all TV was very hard. So in the years that followed, it became kind of like a, well, we were in this kind of awkward period where it felt like in a lot of ways, what we wanted to make was too big for the internet. Um, but we weren't still on TV. Uh, and in that period of time, we produced like all of these really great, but way too expensive um, you know, viral videos. Mm. Um, that was, it kind of felt it, at the time, like we and Funny or Die were in like a space race for like, for like most viral video. <laughs> uh, Cause they would release some just staggeringly expensive looking thing. And then we would release some staggeringly expensive looking thing. And uh, the joys of venture capital. In retrospect, <laughs> yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. I mean, in retrospect, we were both wrong. <laughs> do you, do you wish that, um, that you had Adam Conover ruining everything about viral videos for you back then? <laughs> I mean, I, I think, think it might've been, I mean, I, been what's so funny about, that. yeah. What's so funny about Adam is he is on the one hand, you know, a natural cynic about all of it. I mean, and really deconstructionist and really sees the matrix and really gets how 
stupid it all is. And then on the other hand, he's so excited to, you know, write and make Mitt Romney style. (laughs) (laughs) How much, so how much then, this is a completely strange question. I understand that before I say it, but how much is Adam like your father? Ooh, um, ah, I don't know if Adam is, is all that much like dad. Dad is like the interesting. So the interesting thing about dad is that he really turns it on and off. So Robert Reich is more or less a character that he plays. And then with us, he's like really disarming, incredibly funny. Like he is a deeply funny person in a way that I think a lot of people don't realize like a very darkly funny sense of humor that I think competes with his earnest image. Mm-hmm. Whereas Adam, there's almost, there's very little, <laughs> Adam will like that I'm saying this, but like the Adam character was very much born out of who Adam is. Adam would walk into the kitchen and you'd be eating granola and he would immediately start impressing on you how unhealthy granola actually is. You'd be like, I didn't ask for this at all. Um, yeah, he really feels like he watched Cheers and was like, Cliff Clavin, that's the guy I want to be. Just not. Yeah, work. yeah. But I don't want to work at the post office because the U.S. Postal Service is actually blah, 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 blah. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, he's really, and Adam and I have actually had a lot of healthy debates over the years about digital versus linear, because I think he fundamentally feels like digital is broken in a way that linear isn't. And I think I feel the inverse. Um, uh, He really, he really, I mean, he was the last, uh, he was the last podcast I uh, sat down with in person in Los Angeles before the pandemic shut down. Yes. And he yeah, made yeah, a very, yeah. I think he I made it. He made a listen very, to it. Yeah, he made a very spirited defense, of course, of of you and and everybody else in the digital space and how you got screwed over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we we debate that too, um, honestly, because Adam really has his target set on Facebook, um, and I don't think that's fair. I mean, I think. It's it's funny because I think Facebook is this, I call them this like undeniably problematic platform for all sorts of reasons that um, probably are a little more importantly to do with upending democracy. But um, Facebook wasn't responsible for College Humor's shutdown, like at all. Mm-hmm. It was really more... Uh, like if we're if we're getting to the why, uh, it's because IAC from the time they bought us, which was two weeks after I was first hired in 2006, we're always trying to make us a hundreds of million dollars of value company, and there was always kind of a get rich scheme of the moment. You know, it was like ad sales until it wasn't. And then it was TV until it wasn't. And then it was subscription. And we didn't fail at any of those things. We just didn't succeed, uh, you know, to the extent that we became worth $250 million. And then they just got impatient. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and tried to sell us in sort of a short period of time after losing plenty of money on subscription. And then our finances didn't look great. And then there was no one to buy us except for me. Uh, but you can be sort of angry at IAC, but then also like a lot of the cool stuff we did over the years was because they gave us the allowance to be able to do it. So it's a real blessing and a curse that way. Right. You know? And you also, like we were talking, I think even before I hit record, we both, we both have persisted. And while you've been able to make shows for True TV, Comedy Central which are things that still exist. You've also made shows for YouTube Red, Facebook Watch, <laughs> Go90. Yeah. Uh, something else that I, oh, Pop. Um, yes, yeah. So you've Pop been was that- a TV network, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, you've been able to still keep at it. Um, in, my, in my recollection of events, having lived through them, it felt to me, yeah. and perhaps this is also because for a little while I was working indirectly with My Damn Channel. So it felt like to me that YouTube really was much more of a disruptor to digital comedy even before Facebook was. Because it was Damn, for us. Because My Damn Channel had its own proprietary video platform. You guys had your own. Funnier or Die had its own. You all had your own totally. video platforms that people could embed yeah. directly from your site, but then YouTube just sort of took that all over. Is that what really? Yeah, happened? and I don't mean to. <clears throat> I don't mean to underemphasize the extent to which there has been this hollowing out of the middle class on the internet. I think that's true. I think it's very sad. In other words, that you have these like very small independent publishers on the one hand, and then you have the big kahunas who are have made an active effort to undermine every other independent player or like mid-tier player out there. And what that means is like there was a time where if you were a brand, you were running a website, right? And then it was social media that came in and upset that whole scene. Um, you're right that for for us, YouTube was a big part of that in the sense that if you look at like us and funny or die, we each had a decision to make, which is do we really double down on our YouTube presence or do we remain independent? Um, and in the case of us, we went, look, our audience is growing more rapidly on YouTube than it is our own website. Let's go where the people are. And we became, you know, we still are like a top 500 YouTube channel and we still suffer. And uh, Funny or Die didn't. They made the other decision and they suffered. So there really wasn't a good choice there. Um, but if you're going to point the finger at anyone, uh, I think it makes more sense to point it at YouTube in our specific case than it does Facebook. But really, it's all, again, it's all social media, it's the death of the independent website. If the website was still getting a lot of traffic, we and and the advertisers were were really spending their money that way, meaning they were spending their money on a myriad of websites and not just going to the big social media conglomerates to spend that ad money. 
it'd be a very different business, you know? So, <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know if this is about to make me more cynical than or not, yeah. but you know, is there even a point to sticking around as an independent site or is the point just, and maybe I think this might've been the point for all many independent websites in the beginning was just to get enough notice and enough heat that then you do get acquired by a bigger site. You do well, get, well, like, here's the, mm-hmm. here's the rub. Like I think it does. It just doesn't make sense for the middle class. In other words, um, case in point, you know, college humor had a hundred plus employees and now we are six and a half basically. And college humor makes a lot of sense for us as a team of like under 10 people, mm-hmm. meaning the economics make sense. Like we can run this thing efficiently and each of us make, you know, a healthy enough living that way. Um, same for you, like being a one man band, being a one person band on the internet can make a ton of sense. Uh, you know, if you position yourself right within that sort of storm, I think what's sad is like, and my buddy Matt Clinman talks about this a lot, uh, is just, you know, the like 50, 75, 100 person shop of, uh, collaborative comedy minds. Cause it's like, where is that gone? Right. Cause, cause funny or die still does plenty of business by the way, but they've sort of lost their, uh, largely lost their editorial team. Just discussing what happened to us. The onion is kind of on the rocks at the moment. Um, uh, even UCB is kind of has their back up against the wall given the pandemic. It's kind of like that, that that's the piece that I think that's sad, but no, I mean, I think it's, as as good a time as any to be a uh, entrepreneur or a small team on the internet. I guess I was just meaning it in terms of seeing seeing the the independent site or the smaller site is is not a thing into itself, but more as a jumping off point. Like mm. like Saturday Night Live for many people is the be all end all, but but then there are other comedians who are like, well, I'm not really a, a comedian until I do something after Saturday Night Live. And the same thing might right. be said for College Humor. Well, College Humor is a great place and a great brand. But if I don't do what Streeter and Sarah did and move on to Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I think it, the concern from a talent perspective would be that we're losing these stepping stones. And, and without those stepping stones, like how are people getting discovered? I mean, I, the truth is, I think they'll be discovered more so through their entrepreneurial efforts. So through their Twitter presence, through their stand-up career, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what made places like College Humor important were they were places that someone could hang out for a while, hone their craft, realize their voice, get health care, get paid a reasonable salary to incubate. And 
now those places are very few and far between. Um, you know, I, I say that and I, I have some hope that we'll get back there, get, get back to a version of that, but I won't um, pretend as if I imagine that the future of college humor is once again, a hundred plus employee business. You know, it's, I don't think it is, nor do I think I would necessarily have the appetite to do that as its CEO. Like the, the reason that this business makes sense to me now, well, it's two things. I first of the first of which was I was about to see it go to waste, you know, I was like, that's ridiculous. Uh, and the second of which is, um, you know, it's, it's a place where I specifically can play and continue to create things. And, uh, you know, do projects on a one-off basis that make sense for the business or make sense for TV, but I'm not trying to build an empire, you know, (laughs) is, is that, does that explain the impetus behind a few years ago coming up with the idea and then planning dropout? Well, dropout, I mean, it's, it's funny because the, the timing of dropout was such that, you know, from a corporate perspective, IAC had pretty much decided that the TV side of the business was all well and good, but it wouldn't scale. It wouldn't earn them the money that they wanted. Um, and mind you, being a part of the IAC family was always awkward because there was like us on the one hand and like Tinder on the other. It's like, how can you compete with that, Right. But for them, it sort of like contextualizes their impatience with us a little bit. Like, why aren't you guys growing at a very rapid rate? Um, and then for me, it was kind of like, I had just gotten off the heels of Adam Ruins Everything, A Hot Date, and a smattering of other shows. And I was really playing Hollywood ball uh, that way. And we had just produced, I think my like favorite pilot that we had ever created um and then we we i think what it was was we wrote a script for comedy central they said they felt like it was probably uh not for them we took it to mtv mtv got excited about it we produced the pilot for mtv mtv went we love this but it's too comedy central and uh took it back to comedy central and they were like yeah no still not And uh, I just felt so, I knew it was so good and no one would greenlight it. And I was feeling so frustrated and like nostalgic for, because the the trade-off, which I'm sure you'll appreciate is digital, the budgets are like infinitely lower, but the autonomy is so much greater. And then as the budgets go up, the money goes up, more players get involved. It becomes much more difficult to make what feel like either independent or, you know, creative decisions that have a lot of integrity. That's what makes TV so hard. Um, and I was like, yeah, let's, let's see if we can, you know, give birth again to some, you know, weirder, lower budget chapter of college humor history. I think I'd be really happy doing that again for as long as it, we can do it. 
And then I think the the you know, the funny part there again was like we didn't do poorly. You know, like we we have plenty of subscribers. It's a totally respectable business. Um, we have, you know, a small handful of shows out of the 15 plus that we experimented with that really moved the needle for us from a subscriber standpoint, you know, Game Changer being one of them. Very unexpected, by the way, that like a weird game show would be like a pull onto a subscription platform. Um, but the whole experience of creating shows for subscription was surprising in terms of what worked and what didn't. Um, and, you know, now we have a pathway that we can produce shows independently with. It's like we can, you know, have them on subscription, release them to AVOD, to our free channels after a window. And the economics work a lot better than they did when we were just putting shows on YouTube. So the path, the, the path is there. We just have to, like, figure out how to walk it again and again. Do you feel like you have a better understanding of subscription platforms than, say, Meg Whitman and Jeffrey Kassenberg? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. I had a couple of friends reach out to me. Was it this past? Was It, it was last week, right? A time, <clears throat> time is a flat circle during the pandemic. Yeah, time, so who knows? It's, it's been more than a couple um, of uh, quibbies. <laughs> <laughs> it's really you know think about yeah, quarantine is less than a CISO but more than yes, a Quibi yes the thing about quarantine is that a Quibi feels like a Ken Burns documentary and a Ken Burns documentary feels like a Quibi you know what I mean uh, yeah and Fred's reach out to me and be like well that's a feather for your cap you lasted longer than Quibi did <laughs> Um, yeah, look, I mean, I think I, I know some guys over there. I think that they, I think that if w- you can point to one thing that was definitely wrong with the Quibi strategy was just that they, uh, had and spent so much money, mm-hmm. you know, there's something to be said for like really slowly but surely testing into success and like developing an intimate relationship with your audience and figuring out what they want to see from you and spending money carefully. Uh, Capitalism isn't always interested in like long, you know, the five to 10 year plan. Um, So I think in a lot of ways, like Quibi was just capitalism run amok. But uh, I mean, you know, they had some good programming. The Reno reboot was was really fine. Yeah. Um, but do you feel counter to to the Quibi experience? Do you feel that even though you're playing with a brand name that screams young people, and you're playing in spaces that are supposedly geared toward young people, that even as you approach Professor status yeah that you can still do this for the foreseeable future and just keep doing college humor yeah i mean there are there are pitfalls you know like 
uh, I'm getting older. Will I stay in touch with what young people want to see? Um, we're in a pandemic. Like, what does that mean in terms of uh, the economics of all this? Like, will young people continue to have money to spend? Um, you know, we've done this now. We've created this kind of like road for a show, this path for a show. With 15 experiments, we have, you know, uh, between like three and five shows that really mean something to people and seem to get a response every time we do them. Can we do that again and again? You know, can our batting average increase? Uh, so there are pitfalls. I know that for me, like, the, the thing is, I can probably try to make a go at television at some point in the future. And I probably will, right? We'll probably take like a college humor project or two to, to TV. I can definitely, someone out there in Hollywood will hire me as a, ex, uh, an executive for something. I just have the look. <laughs> <laughs> I just, the glasses, I just the beard, make the sense in a blazer. <laughs> uh, but I'm rarely going to have this, if ever going to have this opportunity. Because if I were starting out from scratch and trying to build college humor all over again, I don't know that I would today. I think it would be too challenging. But we have all of these followers and these social platforms and this brand that has equity dating back to 99. And the, the promise of it is that we can do, or the, the, maybe not the promise, but the, yeah, no, the potential of it is that we can do a type of show that's weirder and more experimental and more on its own terms than the rest of the industry, given the fact that we are independent and given that it's direct to audience. And that uh, potential is worth more to me than I think those other jobs are. So I'll do it until it fails. <laughs> I'll try until I can't try anymore. Well, you certainly, know? certainly uh, being a game show host is uh, much like a Supreme court justice. It's a lifetime appointment of service. You can, do yes. that. you can be a game show host for the rest of your life. And, yeah. uh, and totally uh, actually Adam, Adam Conover to bring it back to him. He, he, and in our debate about traditional versus linear, he was like, you know, digital is like a jail because you start doing something and people like it and then you have to do it forever. To which I responded, that sounds great to me. <laughs> well, Sam, I'm, I'm glad that you're happy and you're in the prison of your own making. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, and you got to work with your childhood idol, Weird Al Yankovic. And they can never take that away from you. They certainly can't. <laughs> they certainly can't. So I look forward to catching up with you in another 10 years and seeing, <laughs> yeah. seeing how we're still holding up. Yeah, I should say. Maybe, maybe a little less long next time. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a good plan to me. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you, sir. <laughs> This episode of The Comics Comic presents Last Things First 
was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.